Hi, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome to Oral Valley Catholic. Sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. In Dante's uh, Purgatorio, sloth is at the exact middle of the uh, mountain that is uh, the mountain of purgatory, because halfway to the spiritual life, you're supposed to just run out of gas. But the slothful, the idlers, are urged on by a quote from Luke, and she made haste to the hill country of Judea. Our blessed lady who goes to see St. Elizabeth makes haste. And so in this Christmas season, we begin by talking about sloth, this time of preparation when we're supposed to combat sloth by perseverance. You know, to the early Christian monks, they called spiritual sloth asedia, or the noonday devil. Spiritual sloth is the sense that all is well, no need to change, all I have to do is coast. We may passionately pursue various successes in our life or make sure we're out in front of cable news at the right time. But as to our spiritual life, we think we have all of our sacraments and we just need to wait it out for that big-time eternal paycheck. Jesus, however, regards sloth as the spiritual killer. And today, as we celebrate the first Sunday of Advent at the beginning of this liturgical year, we listen to a story from Mark where the Lord repeats his command against sloth. The disciples in the story don't take that advice to heart. They thought he was talking about some distant end time. They'd be ready to go when crunch time happened. But the disaster was already upon them while they slept. Today's gospel is from Mark and says Jesus is preparing for his passion and death. So let's talk about how we take on sloth in each of our spiritual life this Advent. Mark's gospel is about this high energy mission of Jesus. Whenever the Lord exercises a demon, forgives a sinner, heals a leper, or walks on water, in the Gospel of Mark, he's immediately on to the next task. It'll always say, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did that. He is a man on a mission, the mission from his Father. And so in that mission, he doesn't have any time to waste. His time grows short. So to understand the story today, to absorb his command to watch, we have to go to the beginning of chapter 13 because the gospel today, which is about watching, is at the very end of chapter 13. So what's the context for what Jesus is saying in today's gospel? Well, if you go to chapter 13, verses 1, Jesus, in chapter 12, has entered Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple. He's performed some miracles. And now he's standing with the guys on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across at this beautiful temple. And uh, one of the disciples says, here's how the story goes. As he was making his way out of the temple area, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what stones and what buildings? And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple area, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, 
Tell us, when will this happen? And what sign will there be when all these things are about to come to an end? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one deceives you. And then there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus starts to lay it out. He told his disciples that the temple would be destroyed and not a stone would be left upon a stone. There would be wars and famines and the desolation abomination, the desolation that abominates, which is right out of uh, the book of Daniel, will be standing where that temple's standing now. That's Mark chapter 13, verse 14. You know, a lot of scholars have argued over that, but I'll, I'll offer what I think is the most uh, plausible explanation for the abomination that desolates. But Jesus instructed his followers that when they saw this stuff happening, they were to flee to the mountains. And if it was winter, too bad for them because the Jordan River was going to flood. And if they're pregnant, too bad for them. This was just going to happen. So get ready. Then there would be persecution of his followers. Okay, so most of chapter 13 is this horror story that we think about at the end of time. And there is some of that in that, in that narrative. But mostly he's talking about an historical event, and that is the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of, uh, of Jerusalem. Because remember, that's what the original question is. It's not about the end of time. It's when will the temple be destroyed? So there are these ancient historians, Josephus and Suetonius for two, talked about the Jewish war provoked by yet another Messiah wannabe after Jesus' death right in the middle of the, the 60s. And this is just before St. Peter and St. Paul are both killed in Rome. But as the direct result of one more Messiah throwing off the yoke of the Romans, well, two legions of uh, Romans under Vespasian and Titus, both future Roman emperors, invaded the Holy Land and uh, started in the north and started to work their way south. They just destroyed town after town. They enslaved everybody. And then the Jewish slaves they took, they used to put together siege ramps and everything they needed, leading right up to the conquest of Masada at the end of the decade. So the point is, about 37 years after Jesus made this prophecy, uh, Jerusalem actually was destroyed. The temple actually was torn down. Um, the Jews, according to Josephus, blamed the Christians because they fled Jerusalem instead of defending it. Why? Because Jesus told them to flee when, this, uh, when these things started to happen. So as the Roman legions approached Jerusalem, the Christians skedaddled. Um, well, those legions, they didn't waste much time. They, they broke through the walls in Jerusalem. They knew the city well. They went to the temple, and they literally tore it down. That's why there's just no temple there anymore. The wailing wall, as you probably know, is just the retaining wall for that temple. And then here's what happened. They erected their camp on the temple mount and offered pagan sacrifices. It was right next to the old Roman fort called the Antonia. And remember, that's where one of the places Jesus was uh, brought, where he met Pontius Pilate and met his death. So they just put the Roman camp right next to the old Roman fort and started sacrificing to Roman gods. That, to me is the most plausible fulfillment of the abomination that desolates, where there's supposed to be uh, sacrifice to the one true God. They're sacrificing to Saturn and God knows who. Well, anyway, they also decided that they were going to destroy the, the Jewish nation 
by renaming Jerusalem Capitolina, a name that stuck for a few centuries after the destruction by the legions. I don't think it was restored till I think, uh, Christian times uh, under the Roman Empire. Any, anyway, Jesus did foretell the end of the world. I mean, when the, the end of the world is coming, but remember, he, he's, he, what he said was, is that when you see the Son of Man coming in his glory, uh, the angels will go out to the four corners of the world and they'll collect all of the elect. And so what does that mean? Because as he finished making his prophecy, then he made the, the statements that are in the gospel today where he tells his disciples three times to watch. And I'm going to come back to that. Three times to watch. So let's think about some of these things about the prophecy. The abomination that desolates, well, the Roman encampment, tearing down the Jerusalem temple, actually happened in the mid-60s and the, as the Romans took most of the captives from Jerusalem and then went to um, uh, Masada, where they conquered the last of the Jewish zealots up there on the top of Masada. Uh, and then this whole thing about the glory of Jesus and the angels going out. But it's all related to this statement of Jesus about watching. Now, here's the thing I want you to remember. The original question is what? Original question is, when will the temple be torn down? And then that leads up to Jesus' instruction here at the end of 13, which is, and this is the key, he says three times to watch. And so in true Mark and form, we're immediately on to what's next. Okay, so while all of this is going on behind the scenes, um, there's a bunch of things cooking. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are uh, plotting against Jesus. While they're plotting against him, some Pharisees have Jesus over to their house. And you remember the story about the woman that comes and anoints, his, uh, anoints him and Jesus says, don't disturb her. She's anointing me for my death. And then what happens next? Does he talk, curses a fig tree and talks about when you see the shoots coming out, know that the, it's getting ready to bear fruit. So this is all leading up to something. And yes, it's Passover. And so in chapter 14, right after today's pericope, um, they are having Passover supper. And he's there with his disciples and the one who would betray him. And then um, they finish dinner, and they go out across the Kidron Valley, if you remember, and they're singing hymns, which is traditional. They're probably singing psalms as they enter uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, and maybe you already see this coming, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and keep watch. So keep in mind, the question is, the temple getting torn down, and watching. And so the disciples say, sure, we'll watch with you. And so Jesus goes over to pray. And if you remember the story, three times they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's each of the watches of the night, which are referred to in this, um, in the pericope from today, the portion of the gospel, is in this watch up to midnight, Jesus comes to them three times, and three times he says, 
Can't you watch with me? Can't you stay awake and watch with me? Can't you watch with me? So do you think there's a uh, connection at the end of chapter 13? He tells them three times to watch. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells them three times to watch. And then what happens? Well, Judas shows up with the temple guard. Jesus is arrested. And you know the rest of the story about his passion and his death. So when Jesus is answering the question about the temple, they're looking at a building. But who's really the temple here? Well, the temple, as you know, is Jesus' body. And so what happens to Jesus also happens to the building because Jesus is associated with the building because he's the new temple. And when he's raised up, what he does is he sends out the church out to the four corners of the world. Because if you remember, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and Jesus does come in his glory in his resurrection, he sends out his angels to gather from the four corners of the world, all of the elect. Well, angel comes from a Greek word, angelos, and angelos means messenger. It doesn't primarily mean a spiritual being. In Christian terms, as we always use it as a spiritual being, but when you're sent out into the world uh, to preach the gospel by what you say and do, you're an angelos also. So what do you make of these two chapters? Here's what I would suggest. It's this understanding found in all four Gospels, and especially in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, about Christ and the church, that the temple is no longer a building in Jerusalem. The temple is the body of Christ. That's where true worship takes place. And then one temple is destroyed so God's temple can be raised up. And when Jesus comes in his glory of his resurrection and his ascension, remember it says that uh, Jesus will come in the clouds of glory. But at the end of the Gospels, when he ascends, it all says he's taken up in a cloud. And so when he sends out uh, these angelos, these messengers, it's uh, God's angels going out into the world uh, to gather the elect. It's the same thing that will happen at the end of time. But you know, biblical prophecy is always about this spiritual order that we try to make sense of in uh, our material world. But God is what God does. And the work of the church is the work of uh, collecting, gathering God's people to himself. And so at the heart of the gospel today, what's really at stake? And what I would say is at stake is to avoid the sin of spiritual sloth. And so clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are slothful. They're napping for heaven's sake. They weren't made for napping. Jesus told them three times, stay awake and watch with me. Because we're supposed to be attentive. The gospel works at an historical level. This actually happened. But also it works at an allegorical or an anagogical level. Anagogical means it tells us something about the spiritual life, about the way of heaven. And it's whether it's uh, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins, the story we had a couple weeks ago about being ready for the bridegroom's return. Over and over again in the gospel, Jesus warns against sloth 
as one of the deadly sins uh, that renders us unfit for the return of the bridegroom. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa Theologica, the second part of the second part, I actually looked it up. He taught that a sloth denotes sorrow for a spiritual good. It's evil on two counts, both in itself and the point of its effect. It's uh, being indifferent towards a spiritual good. And then in its effect, um, it makes us listless, um, not attentive to spiritual duty. The sign of spiritual sloth is when you're lazy about spiritual things. Um, you don't even bother to make a time of prayer. If you do, you don't show up for it. You start skipping mass or uh, you make excuses week after week for not fasting on Fridays. Or you don't try to learn anything more about your uh, about the faith. You don't try to learn to love God better by reading the scriptures. Uh, and so uh, sloth is always opposed by diversions. Um, diversions are the nonsense we come up with to kind of uh, keep from doing whatever we want to do. You know, we can be pretty attentive to diversions when it undermines pulling the weeds in the backyard or undermines doing some task at work that none of us like to do. Uh, but diversions are uh, particularly destructive in the spiritual life. Um, instead of taking five, ten minutes to, to pray, you plant yourself in front of cable TV or on the Internet and you're looking for the next outrage so you can feel enthused and if you feel this emotion of passion that you're actually doing something but you know we came up with that phrase virtue signaling because it's just a signal it's not real virtue um sloth is the way that we avoid becoming who god made us to be so the sloth will excel at diversions we all have our diversions right but it's this constant battle. You know, St. John Cassian talked about sloth, and he said that he went out to live with the desert fathers, and he went to see the leader, Abbot, uh, Abbot Moses, and he said that uh, he was overwhelmed with sloth in his cave, and he needed some advice about how to escape it. And Abbot Moses said, well, the way you escape it is you don't escape it. You stay in your, your uh, cave and you fight it. When you run out to talk to me about it, you're just running away, essentially saying, I'm a diversion for you. You get in there and you feel like not doing something, you know, man up. Do what you're supposed to do. Weave your mat, say your prayers. What do you think? Do you think America's most deadly sin might well be sloth, expressed as indifference to the spiritual life? In a culture that trumpets relativism, um, sloth is the sure outcome, right? If nothing really matters, everything goes to the same place. Why do you have to be zealous about spiritual matters? Have you ever heard the word apatheism? Theism is, of course, theism is belief in God. Atheism is not believing in God. But apatheism is an absence of passion for God. Apatheism is indifference, it's sloth, apathos. It comes from the Latin, which means without feeling. Um, if nothing is true, nothing matters. And so the big American phrase is whatever. Catholics who shirk their spiritual duties like attendance at mass might well be suffering from spiritual sloth. There might also be good reasons for it, but not always, I suspect. 
So what's the cure for sloth, my friend? You're here talking to Dr. J, because I can tell you what our tradition says about your weapons against sloth. And what's the weapon against sloth? Perseverance, zeal, and attentiveness to duty. You probably saw that one coming. In short, watch. And so whenever you think about applying a spiritual remedy to a spiritual disease, think about it at the three levels of how you operate, thought, word, and deed. So let's talk about perseverance in thought. Have you ever wondered why priests wear black? Probably you already know the answer, right? Priests wear black because they're supposed to think about their death. Because when you die, you want to be found doing God's business. There were monks, apparently, that slept in their own coffins. Because the art of dying well is to think of it in the right way. And so to remember that with each of us, our own little world's coming to an end. And death is a good thing if you're ready for it, not so much if you're not. St. Basil wrote that the chief mark of the Christian is to watch daily and hourly and to stand prepared in that state of total responsiveness, pleasing to God, knowing that the Lord will come in an hour that we do not expect. The whole world will someday come to an end. I suspect our little part in this world is going to come to an end, perhaps unexpectedly, no doubt abruptly. And so when it's there, it's there. What do you want God to find you doing? Well, how about perseverance and holy thought? You know, St. John Newman wrote, God has created each of us to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told in the next. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place. And while not intending it, if I do keep his commands, he'll find me doing what it is he put me here to do. So how do we escape being uh, angels of peace, preachers of truth, and keepers of commandments? By diversions. Let's just focus on one that can afflict each one of us. Here's a great diversion that uh, undermines peace, truth, and the commandments. How about grumpiness? How does grumpiness feed our sloth and dishearten others? And disheartening another is what leads them themselves to sloth. The cure for grumpiness is to remind ourselves that we could be dead at our final judgment. Better that we are here supporting each other in the life of faith and just learning to resist this sin of sloth that comes to us in our tendency to whine, gripe, and complain. So for Advent, here's something exciting. Try giving up being a grump. Here's a good spiritual work for the season of Advent. Give up correcting others. Ooh, that hurts. Yes, when you correct others, you probably are right. There probably is something deeply annoying about that person as much as you love them. And maybe they actually need to hear it. But consider, possibly, that this good work is not one that God has chosen for you and that you're not the messenger to the one you love with one more grumpy complaint. And so build a Christian culture where you live and where you work. 
Give up being a grump, a whiner, and a complainer. Just decide that your motto for the, for the season of Advent is no griping. Here's another. Perseverance in word. This is how we talk to others. Vigilance is the mark of a Christian, but probably very few of us when we woke up this morning. Seriously consider the possibility that the world might end today. It is true that the world as a whole will might end today. Maybe it won't, probably won't. But my little part of it can sure as heck come to an end anytime, and as I said, abruptly. So why spend your time preparing for that by grumbling? This is a pretty serious thing we're aiming for. So watch is what Jesus says. The one thing St. Benedict, the great uh, father of monasticism in the West, couldn't tolerate in a monk is grumbling. He said that grumbling spreads strife, separates close friends. Grumbling makes us and others restless and angry, makes us want to avoid each other. Idlers gadding about, Benedict said, from house to house, cell to cell, and we're gossips and busybodies, saying what we should not say. St. John Chrysostom, who's just a little older than St. Benedict, wrote, It's better to do nothing than to do it with murmuring, for even the very thing itself is spoilt, for murmuring is intolerable, most intolerable. It borders upon blasphemy. It's proof of ingratitude. The murmurer is ungrateful to God. For perseverance and word, try this, this very Advent. Here we go. Keep your opinion to yourself. Yes, your opinion may be spot on. The world may desperately need it. However, in all Christian charity, possibly the world's not yet ready to hear it. And so unless you're asked for your opinion, why not just keep it for yourself and see whether the world maybe gets to be a better place. And so perseverance in thought, perseverance in word. The three, third part of this trifecta is perseverance in deed. So our actions will undermine the demon of grumpiness if we maybe avoid complaining to other people, tearing them down, being a grump. If we maybe keep our opinions to ourselves more, then Maybe we undermine the spirit of grumpiness in us. Well, here's another thing you can do that is possibly easier than holding your opinion or not tearing another person down with your grumpiness. How about trying the spiritual and corporal works of mercy? Uh, these are Christian duties, and we should be alert about doing those. And we're called constantly to watchfulness and perseverance in our duties of mercy. See, the sloth of our culture is expressed in apathy and indifference. And I would say that the fruit of all that is all the anger that you hear. These manifestations of generalized spiritual sloth, this storm of sloth that sucks us into it, undermine charity and energy by substituting grumpiness as action. If I'm complaining, I'm doing something. Nonsense. Why complain? when we might be able to make the world a better place by action. We can join into the generalized apathy of our time through diversions such as griping at the boob tube or burning down someone else's neighborhood, but constantly planting ourselves in front of the tube, anxious to hear the next disturbing tidbit, is not really a step in a positive direction. Our anxiety fools us into thinking we actually care and are doing something when all we're really doing is griping. It's so impotent. It's such flailing. 
It's merely a diversion from the work of being whom God made us to be. Diversions are a tactic of the satanic in our life and community. They disturb our peace and the peace of others. To persevere indeed is to undertake this advent, some act of spiritual or corporal work of mercy, striking in spiritual sloth, sloth, the assault of sloth on our soul. And so here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. The works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities, instructing, advising, consoling, comforting, our spiritual works of mercy, as our forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. The corporal works of mercy consist especially in feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned, and burying the dead. Among all these, giving alms to the poor is one of the chief witnesses to fraternal charity. It's also a work of justice, pleasing to God. So try being charitable to another person or in traffic, or in the line at the supermarket, or participating in the giving tree in the parish of Narthex. When you wear a mask to mass, and I hope you do, then think of that as a a corporal work of mercy. I know it's controversial with a lot, but we have lots of people who come to mass and are afraid of getting infected. So let's all care for one another. So when Jesus told us to watch, like he told the disciples three times, and then again three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, let's learn by their example, and let's be better at watching. We do it through thought, word, and deed, by combating the sloth which claimed those poor disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Aren't you glad they're so honest about their story? So let's be about our Father's business. He calls us to prayer, not drowsiness. Naps are nice, but we're not created for naps, but for the works of mercy and justice. So pray for those most in need in our, co- in our country, and especially in your family. Empty your closet as an act of fraternal charity. Be attentive. Be watchful. The Lord will return when each of us least expects it. Let's do our best to be prepared. It's been one more episode of Oral Valley Catholic. I hope this is a very beautiful advent for you and your family. And I'm going to try not to gripe.